I don't have any thoughts about migrant workers. I think the whole thing is so fucked. That's my contribution. Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. I'm Sam Andrew. And today we are catching up on the news of the last couple of weeks. First, we will dive into Ontario's new math curriculum, which the government says will boost EQAO scores. Is this a postulate, a mere conjecture, or can they offer rigorous proof? This is quite the dilemma. Yeah, you're supposed to emphasize the word lemma there. What the? What is lemma? I so here's so here's 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 the moment of truth. Alexi wrote this discussion guide, and I, I tried my best to deliver that joke like I knew what a lemma was, but I don't know what a lemma is. That's that's a math joke that nobody gets, Alexi. I'm sure there are people listening to this pod who get that math joke. A lemma is a an intermediate um, proof or theorem within a larger one, like a like a like a function you would call within a larger program. I'd like opinion polling on the percentage of Canadians that know that. <laughs> I, well, uh, you learn something new every day. We will also be discussing the latest development in COVID spread to migrant farm workers in Ontario. Uh, and finally, we will check in on some news out of Ottawa where the details of the Canada Student Service Grant are widely available. And all the attention is on the government's decision to have the WE charity, which uh, ha- famously has ties to Trudeau's family, handle program administration. I uh, have to say, friends, just on a, on a personal note, it is great to be back, uh, although I also loved being on vacation uh, and tuning into the podcast as a, as a regular listener, as a fan. I wanted to leave a five-star review, but I actually have already left one, which uh, for some reason, when I go to our iTunes store, I can't make go away as the top review of our podcast. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of dumb. Uh, but um, yeah, no, the, the place didn't go to hell. I'm, uh, I'm, I like love all the episodes. Thank you. It was my first experience hosting solo. It was it was fun. It was great. You did a great job on that. The Pride episode well, thank was fantastic. You. Thank you. Yeah, the Pride episode also did really well. Like tons and tons of downloads on that one. So way to go, Pride enthusiasts mm-hmm. and Sam. But yeah, maybe uh, diving right in with math. On June 23rd, the Ontario government unveiled a new math curriculum for grades 1 to 8. Starting this September, it will replace the curriculum that has been in place since 2005. Uh, The government promised this new curriculum as part of its broader math strategy aimed at raising EQAO math scores, which have been a subject of much public debate for some time. Uh, Although the move to a new curriculum started in 2017 under the previous Liberal government. Uh, so to refresh everyone on the statistics, in 2019, 58% of grade three students reached the provincial standard on the EQAO math test, which is a B grade or above. That is down five percentage points from 2016. Uh, only 48% of grade six students met the standard, also down slightly from prior years. Uh, This isn't just an Ontario thing. This is consistent with a broad trend of declining math scores across Canadian provinces and even internationally in many places. Uh, And Ontario students continue to perform well relative to their international peers on math. Some of the curriculum changes the government is touting include a greater focus on fundamental math concepts and skills, such as learning and recalling multiplication tables, updated examples that help students see math in their everyday lives, 
teaching coding skills starting in grade one to improve students' ability to become problem solvers and develop technology fluency and developing an understanding of financial literacy. Uh, so I look forward to when all of these uh, grade ones enter the labor market and are vastly more skilled than I will ever be. But reaction to the curriculum has been mixed. The opposition parties have mostly criticized the timing rather than the actual substance of the changes. Teachers unions pretty much uniformly come out and said that implementing this new curriculum uh, by September is unrealistic and have asked the government for a two-year in. So guys, I'm actually really excited to dig into this one. Maybe starting off, what do you guys like and dislike about the new curriculum uh, and the, about the debate that it's generating? I think there's lots to like in the curriculum itself. I think the focus on social emotional learning and broad transferable skills like confidence in, in math have been a long time coming. As you mentioned, it's not that this government uh, generated those ideas. Um, and I think it's nice to see those reflected. And I think, you know, this, this curriculum more than most, uh, was, was not updated quickly enough. Um, the fact that, uh, we sort of let it go from 2005 on, uh, was too long. And I think it, you know, long overdue. And, and there's reasons for that. These curriculum documents are supposed to be on a 10 year cycle, but, um, we decided to hold off on updating it uh, due to labor, and then we wanted to do a new math strategy that focused on professional learning because the scores were sliding and the curriculum just kept uh, getting pushed back. And so I think I think it's good that they've done this. I think um, you know there was lots of focus in the coverage on this being a back to basics curriculum. Uh, it's not that students weren't learning how to multiply and divide before, but I, th I think in fairness there was elements of the practice within Ontario that weren't focusing on rote learning of the times tables. Um, and it's not that the curriculum ever said that they couldn't focus on that. It's just that the curriculum said students have to be able to multiply by, you know, up to nine by nine in certain grades. Um, and they've changed that to uh, the phrasing is now recall and demonstrate multiplication facts as before it just said, uh, be able to demonstrate how to multiply. And so I think the word recall in there sends a signal to teachers who uh, maybe weren't focusing as much on on those times tables. Uh, and I'm sure that parents who are, are were anxious about that um, will appreciate that change. And I think that that change makes sense because I think it was never the intention of the old curriculum to not uh, have a focus on the times table. So, um, you know, there's little things in there about, uh, you know, coding and financial literacy that I think are, are positive developments just to bring the curriculum up to date. So I think there's lots to like about it. I think the timing uh, is tough. I understand why the government wanted to move forward with it because it had been so long delayed. Um, I just think practically, given we're in the middle of a pandemic, Teachers are not going to fully implement coming September, even if the government doesn't change course and, and continues to say that they'll require it. Nobody is policing the conduct of individual teachers in their classrooms. And so just realistically, it's just not going to happen uh, because they released it in you know late June and teachers are off now and also it's a pandemic. And so I get why the unions are pushing back. Um, so that will just, I'm sure, can continue to be a sore spot. But overall, I think I think the government deserves some credit for for mostly getting this one right. I, I agree with uh, all of that, Sam. I think my and maybe I'd like to know if you agree with this. I think 
generally speaking in our society, we place way too much emphasis on curriculum as a solution to education problems. Um, and as you said, there's no policing of teachers in classrooms to what they actually are teaching and how closely they're adhering to the curriculum. And so these documents are, as you said, like they're making changes to these things that will send signals to teachers and will hopefully have persuasive impact uh, over time. But it's, I mean, to me, a lot of this is broadly irrelevant to the idea of changing EQAO math scores in any kind of near-term future. Uh, And that cuts both ways. It's also kind of broadly irrelevant that the teachers' unions would make a big fuss about it being implemented by September um, for exactly the same reason, that that, um, the government benefits from everyone thinking that changing curriculum is going to uh, be this huge policy labor that's going to make everything better. Uh, and similarly, teachers unions benefit from also keeping that sort of idea up. And so they they fight this this battle about when it's going to be implemented. But I, I mean, based, I guess, based on my experience, and as I said, if you disagree, let me know. I just don't think that these things have uh, any kind of sudden impact and that a lot of people continue on the way they were teaching and maybe make minor adjustments. But this is not a sea change of any kind in the way we're teaching math. Um, It may make people who dislike discovery math feel better about the fact that now we're talking about multiplication tables, but I just don't see uh, some kind of wholesale change across the province in what is happening on a day-to-day basis in math classes as a result of this. Uh, I think the best thing that comes out of it is that teachers have access to a bunch of new resources that are updated, new examples, things like that, that they can learn from if they're teachers who want to take advantage of those new resources, which is not every teacher, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, and I, I wanted to actually ask about that sort of specifically. And Sam, you might know this better than anyone since, you know, he, he, as you worked with the ministry to release new curriculums. And I'm wondering if you can just paint for our audience maybe a picture of like what these, what happens in schools when a new document comes out? Like what do people, what's the process? How does that actually impact when the ministry releases a new document like this? Like, you know, what are the, what are the, the steps? Because we know it's not just sort of like all of a sudden, you know, here's the curriculum, all the lesson plans change on a dime. And all of a sudden, your kids are learning, you know, coding and financial literacy in the first week of September. Like, that's not how I understand it works. Yeah, no, I think in terms of how the school boards implement it, um, you know, there are math leads in every board, and they will, you know, use this new curriculum as a way to do professional learning, you know, there's usually a PA day dedicated, at least in part to math. And so, you know, presumably this upcoming one, whenever it is uh, in this school year, will be dedicated to, you know, in part learning about the new curriculum. And so in that way, again, to Alexi's point, it sends signals, it gets certain messages across to, to individual teachers, but, you know, that teacher needs to listen to that, absorb that, incorporate into their lessons plans, uh, that all takes time, right? And I think, you know, most teachers practically have like literal binders, or maybe they now have like, you know, online drives where they have, you know, their lesson plans for the, for uh, how they're going to tackle certain units, what the assignments are, what the worksheets are, what the, you know, homework assignments are, uh, you know, the very nitty gritty of learning in K to 12 schools. And uh, that stuff doesn't, will not get updated overnight. Uh, it will take time. Um, and I think that's in part why the, why the unions are pushing back because there can be within schools, you know, principal pressure or the math lead who's, you know, delivering the professional learning. Um, you know, there's just like human dynamics about how fast and, and at what pace to, to make these changes. And so um, it's a dynamic that will play out. But I think 
yeah, I think to exactly Alexis' point, I agree with you 100%. It's, it's, um, this has almost no relationship to whether EQAO scores will go up in, uh, next year now that there won't be EQAO next year, but, um, which the government also announced. But the, the fact that the scores are sliding, whether curriculum played a role is, I think, up for significant debate. Yeah. Yeah. No, the only thing I, I might add on sort of the commentary on the curriculum is I, I am, I was similarly pleased to see the government kind of not throw out, the baby with the bathwater. I mean, like, I don't think there are many people in Ontario who actually understand what is in the curriculum and what the benefits of certain content might be versus other content. And the politics around it very much have been kids don't know times tables, discovery math bad. But I think if you were to ask anyone who's complaining about discovery math, and then you ask them for a definition of discovery math, very few people complaining about it would have been able to give you a coherent one. So I was pleased to see the government, you know, while they definitely signaled a a shift to some fundamentals that they are also, you know, they're talking about things like uh, social emotional learning skills, how to apply math to your life. I mean, I think there's just like data and like problem solving, all those things that I think Discovery Math was also trying to tackle and some of those things that were built in were also trying to tackle, um, I thought was a, a, a helpful way to land this ship, if not frustrating, because there was a very reductive debate that got us to this point. Yeah, I agree. It is incredibly reductive. The The setup of this discovery math versus sort of rote learning is an artificial divide that, that doesn't and shouldn't exist. And I think the best people who comment on this, if you read people who like study math curricula, the there's it's it's all about balance, right? Like you have to be able to understand some of these fundamental concepts in certain ways, but you also then have to be able to apply your knowledge. And I think that goes back to EQAO tests themselves. The EQAO test doesn't just test your times tables. So like learning your times tables isn't enough to pass the EQAO test. You have to also learn to apply this knowledge in new ways and new situations to some extent if you're going to do well in those tests, because that's what we expect from students. And so you need both these things in order to to excel and Sam correct me if I'm wrong but my recollection of the sort of diving into the details on the EQAO results is that the where a lot of students don't meet that standard is actually more on that connecting your learning side yeah. it's not yeah. on the rote skills and so if you if your goal really is to move those numbers you should be informed by what kinds of things students are not achieving well on the current tests and addressing those. And I don't see this process as having been fundamentally driven in any way by that kind of an evidence base. The only thing I will say that's slightly different than I think what you just said is, I think there is some emerging evidence that children's attention span is shortening with, you know, new digital technologies and things like that. Kids in their phones. (laughs) um, And that there's like speculation that that is rooted in the math score uh, decline. Um, And because it's a global phenomenon, right? Like the math scores are are not just declining in Ontario. And so that there's some sense that, you know, making sure that they have whatever, nine times eight, as a recall rather than something they have to work through will improve their ability to do the problem solving. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's totally one or the other to your point, um, of course, but anyway, I guess I just say, I don't think there's anything wrong. I think it's a positive change to, to make sure that the recall is happening. Of course it was already happening in classrooms all across the province, but I think there's nothing wrong with that change, but exactly to your point, the idea that that's going to, 
fundamentally make every student in Ontario much better at math is silly. One thing I can't recall is whether or not the EQAO asks you what a lemma is. Um, <laughs> if the EQAO asks you what a lemma is, I would also do that right. in the EQAO. I'd be at level one. I would draw a picture of a llama. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm, uh, yes. Um, all right. Uh, so moving on. Every year, uh, Ontario welcomes 20,000 temporary foreign workers to farms and greenhouses across the province, and thousands more work in the sector as undocumented migrants, often moving from farm to farm, job to job. This year, over 1,000 migrant farm workers have contracted COVID-19, far above the rate in the general population. Uh, This is justifiably raising questions about the health and safety conditions uh, at these farms and has prompted the federal government to promise an overhaul of the temporary foreign worker program and the Mexican government to threaten to cut off this labor supply if worker safety cannot be assured. At the end of May, 31-year-old Bonifacio Eugenio Romero from Mexico was the first migrant farm worker in Ontario to die from COVID-19. About a week later, Rogelio Munoz Santos, a 24-year-old worker from Mexico, uh, also died after contracting it. Both men worked at farms in the Windsor-Essex area. On June 21st, there was a third death, this time at a farm near Simcoe, which had 217 COVID-19 cases. Uh, Earlier this week, Ontario saw another large spike of COVID cases, uh, traced to an outbreak of 175 cases at a single farm in Windsor-Essex that employs 450 workers. According to Leamington Mayor Hilda McDonald, the Red Cross is coming to help and military assistance, similar to what we saw in long-term care homes, is also on the table. CTV News interviewed one worker who described living and working conditions that made it easy for the virus to spread rapidly. Uh, Rooms that were three meters by three meters with four people sleeping together on worn out beds. Workers uh, are also often not paid if they take off a day uh, due to uh, from work to be uh, because they're sick, and some allege that their Wi-Fi access has been cut off if they are homesick. Uh, so there are large there are large incentives built in for workers maybe not to report their illnesses. Those workers who are undocumented, things are even worse. They fear accessing health services might cause their immigration status to be questioned. Um, So an advocacy group called Justice for Migrant Workers is calling for a shutdown of the agricultural sector until worker safety can be assured. The province has since ordered one farm shut, but uh, Chatham-Kent-Leamington conservative MPP Rick Nichols rejected a wider shutdown, saying that this would be killing economic business, saying we deal with facts, not just emotions. Very empathetic, Rick Nichols. Uh, The Ford government is promising expanded on-site testing and access to emergency benefits and supports for foreign workers. Um, Controversially, the province is also allowing farm workers infected with the virus to continue work as long as they're asymptomatic. Any rather ironic twist, the federal government admitted to CBC this week that the vast majority of its inspections this year have been virtual rather than in person for safety reasons. So this is obviously a huge problem. Um, uh, similar in some ways to what we saw in long-term care. Uh, curious, uh, you know, what we think about this, uh, what we think about the government response so far. Yeah, Chris, I think the long-term care comparison is apt in that uh, it this is a, a sector that has been underappreciated in terms of the challenges that exist and that there has been a lack of attention that now looking back, I think, is hard to justify and that this these outbreaks really have brought new attention, which was very much needed uh, on the working conditions on these farms, and particularly for those uh, workers who are undocumented. So 
to put it frankly, this is driven in a large part, I think, by by racism. Uh, these workers are not uh, treated in a way that we would feel uh, would be right to treat uh, Canadians, to treat probably white workers. And that's, you know, that's that's definitely contributing to this. And in a time that we're in right now, I think that needs to be noted up front. The broader policy challenges are many. This is partly a federal issue. It's good to see the federal government is going to look at temporary foreign worker program. But, you know, whether that will actually result in any significant changes is questionable. I think the province uh, has been less uh, willing to admit that things need to be uh, changed in a greater way. Currently, they're still focusing on the same ideas of, of testing and temporary support, not any kind of systemic change. Uh, and I think the asks of groups like Justice for Migrant Workers, not just calling for a shutdown until safety can be assured, but also uh, making sure that these people have a path to citizenship, uh, making sure that they have access to, to healthcare and the same benefits as, as other people working in, in Canada during this time. I think these are reasonable requests that need to be considered in, in a greater detail. And I, I think it's too bad that we have a government right now in Ontario that isn't willing to um, to step up and, and treat these people with the like dignity and uh, human rights that they deserve in the same way as anyone else in Ontario. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things that like strikes me as something that has been a probably invisible problem for uh, way too long and how close this work is to communities that, you know, um, you know, if you've, like this exists in Windsor, Essex, it exists in the Niagara region. It props up our farm system. It has for some time. And the fact that that system is propped up by people who make less than we do, who we would if we were doing these jobs, you know, and as a result, I guess we get we get to pay lesser food prices. Farmers make a little bit more money, but you know that that's we're sort of now seeing the 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 costs of of this uh, of of this thing. And you know, I think one of the things that also makes this dangerous is that you know, unlike long term care homes, this is a much more mobile population. Workers will move from farm to farm, community to community. And the inbuilt incentives to not report, not stay home if you're sick, uh, that can exist are, um, in addition to being socially and ethically repugnant, also a huge public health problem, potentially. The federal government did mandate that people who were using temporary foreign workers needed to provide paid time off on a number of these things. And the prime minister said he's investigating cases where uh, the rules were not followed. And uh, there are potential penalties that, you know, employers who have uh, abused foreign workers uh, will and could face. But it also is probably really hard to see where that is happening if you're not actually going. So I'm glad there's been some scrutiny on the federal government's very light supervision of this because there's a lot that we can probably do and improve with the current rules and with just adequate enforcement yeah, I mean, and some of these things are, are public policy changes at the provincial level, too. I know some other problems, for example, have a registry. So if you are going to be a recruiter of foreign workers, you have to register and uh, with the government. And so there's a tracking of at least of uh, some data of who is who is actually bringing these people in from where this kind of thing. That doesn't exist in Ontario, from what I understand. And, and that makes a lot, by, a lot easier for uh, the premier referred to them as fly by night uh, recruiters to take advantage of people. At the end of the day, the there were, there must have been calculus in some people's minds at least made that a these people are predominantly young and so 
maybe it's not so bad if they get COVID, uh, even though we've now seen three of them uh, die. And B, they don't have a ton of uh, contact directly with the rest of the population. I mean, they're quite segregated in the way that they live their lives while in Ontario. And I think those two things fed into a sense that these people are, you know, expendable in some ways, at least in terms of, of getting getting the disease. Uh, and certainly the Ontario government continues to send that signal by saying, if you're asymptomatic, you can continue to work. Um, and that, that seems to me to suggest that they aren't learning a lot from this. Yeah. Another area where COVID has proved to be, um, you know, uh, a revealer of social problems and economic problems that existed well before the pandemic started, uh, in my opinion. Um, moving us on to our last topic, I am uh, quite excited about this one. Late last week, the federal government released details of the new Canada Student Service Grant, which will provide students up to $5,000 towards their post-secondary education. The amount of grant depends on the volunteer hours with each hour worth about $10 in grants. Um, this creates, this is, a, this is a huge volunteer program and uh, creating a, such a huge program overnight and implementing it in a matter of weeks is a tall order. So to achieve this, it seems the feds decided to outsource this program to the nonprofit sector. Um, through a procurement process run by the nonpartisan civil service, the government selected the WE charity to administer the almost the over $900 million program. So for those who aren't familiar with WE, it was founded by Craig and Mark Kielberger and describes itself as a movement empowering youth across Canada, the US and the UK through service learning, inspiring them to make a difference in their communities and around the world. Um, opposition parties uh, are asking the Auditor General to investigate the selection of WE as the program administrator because the Prime Minister, um, and specifically the Prime Minister's uh, wife, have close ties to the organization. His wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, is a volunteer ambassador and hosts a podcast for them. The PM defended the decision, saying the federal government concluded that the WE charity is the only organization capable of administering this program. Though this doesn't explain why the federal public service couldn't manage such a program in-house. The government has also stressed that we will not make any profit off of the administration of this program. However, we is offering 450 volunteer positions at its own charity as a part of the program. So tricky subject here. Um, from our own experience in government, maybe before we get into like the decision to pick we, what do you guys make of the decision to outsource the administration of this new grant program? You know, why would a government choose to not take a program like this in-house and like instead ask someone else to run it? Yeah, that's a that's a tricky question. I mean, it it uh, it things change over time in, in the thought on topics like this, uh, what kinds of things are best achieved in-house in government, what kinds of things are best outsourced to others. I think the government is just was worried uh, at the the size of the task at hand and uh, thought that maybe uh, handing it out to somebody else can sometimes create greater flexibility in the way that the program is administered. Um, and to be honest, can can make some of the transparency around the administration a little bit less rigorous, which can make things move more quickly as well. Yeah, when we were in government, we created a school bus driver incentive program, basically giving money to school bus drivers to um, stay on the job because we had a problem with school bus drivers leaving because of the low 
wages they were making. So basically a wage subsidy for, but we ran it through the school bus associations. I think I viewed it at the time, at least there, because that organization had an element of, of trust in the sector, um, more expertise than the government or uh, the ministry would have maybe in direct delivery and maybe a, a little bit of a reduction on the liability that we might feel and sort of like operational decisions of the program. Uh, although I think that that was a, a not necessarily as much of a benefit as, um, you know, one might think, I mean, if something goes wrong in a government program, no matter who is delivering it, the government's going to hear about it. But I think the hope was that the perception would be that, you know, giving the money to the people who are delivering the service to distribute and run would, you know, have better results in the end than, you know, it all being done from Queens Park in Toronto. Yeah. And I think ESDC, who is the ministry that supports this minister, also like has a tendency to outsource delivery um like the Canada student loans program which is one of their core programs is managed by dnh right like a private company and like the call centers and the online delivery and that sort of thing so like just as an example like i don't think it's i don't think it's unusual i don't think the outsourcing bothers me at all obviously the manner in which this had to be conducted on the timeline creates at minimum perception challenges, whether there's actual challenges, I think we can discuss more, but they also like just, again, in fairness, like even if they wanted to turn to Service Canada the way they did the student benefit, like it wouldn't even really make sense because a lot of these are going to be high school students who don't yet have, you know, their sins and and tax filing set up with the CRA, which was like the main hurdle for, to access the like the payments right um so like i i guess i just i totally get why they decided they needed a totally parallel new infrastructure to deliver this totally new thing like i, I don't think that should be subject to criticism oh yeah absolutely and like you, like i you know i think i kind of understated it before when like you know the policy questions that face a thing like this are really onerous i mean like you know their labor experts have already raised questions about okay what is the the line between what is volunteer work and what is work that should be paid is not actually spelled out very clearly and you know standards differ from province to province workplace to workplace dependent on the president of a union a lot of unions have looked at this program with some suspicion saying is this going to become a way for you know uh employers to you know like hire bring students on to work for government money as opposed to grow our workforces. So, you know, huge complexity here. So yeah, it makes sense to me. Before we uh, sign off today, I want to just turn quickly to the politics, which is have really, I think, not gone the way the government uh, would have wanted with a program like this. Uh, do we think Trudeau is in any kind of trouble here? I don't think it's good. I mean, especially the stuff that's come out in the last couple of days about one of the Kielbergers saying that the prime minister's office called them the next day after the announcement. And then he's saying he's misspoke. Actually, the ESDC official called them and it was a week later and he was speaking, you know, I forget what he said, but like, you know, basically saying that he was uh, lying when he said that. Uh like maybe true, like people say things right to sound important and connected, but like terrible in terms of optics. Um, I just think the opposition smells blood. There's no way this thing goes away, especially with the Sophie thing. There's like a certain connectedness to the Trudeau brand that 
they like to go after. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Uh, I just think yeah. that, uh, no, there, like, I think there will be AG reports and there's no way this thing dies. Yeah, I agree, especially in a minority parliament where the opposition has the ability to use committees and things like that to investigate this. Um, but I think I think this will stick around. Uh, I haven't, you know, as you said, I, ha- I haven't seen anything to suggest that that there aren't innocent explanations for all these things. That the 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 we um, person in question misspoke. That Trudeau really was, uh, and all of his staff really were separated from the procurement process itself. I think those things could all be completely true. It just, yeah, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't ever look good when an organization that the prime minister is close to wins a sole, uh, basically a sole source contract, uh, and then is defended pretty vigorously by, by the prime minister after that for, um, being the only, the only organization that can deliver the, the program. So I, I think that that line that the prime minister said, you know, the civil service told me this is the only organization that can deliver the program is, is maybe the problem that I've seen in the response. I mean, with the Future Skills Center, which exists at Ryerson University, it landed at Ryerson after a process that was, you know, with multiple participants that was open. Uh, there was a call for proposals. I mean, you know, you can, uh, and with this, it, like those details just aren't as readily available. Um, there are good reasons for governments to sole source things sometimes, but like if there was a criteria list, where they looked at every not-for-profit that was registered in the country and they said, you know, we need a not-for-profit and we is the only one, you know, they need to be able to back that up with something more than just them saying it's the only one. You know, I, I think there's kind of like a, there's been a bit of like an indignation in the response to be like, um, of course we support we. And uh, that I think is is n- not going to help this issue go away um and you know I, I can definitely see it becoming the kind of thing that lives in conservative conspiracy theory for like years and also just we as a controversial organization in some quarters already like you know there are lots of folks on uh, progressive folks who i think have some really valid criticisms of the kind of development work uh we does of the way that they cast a lot of their programs in sort of you know a kind of a white savior complex kind of light the way they treat their staff yeah yeah there's lots of stories about it very legally i want to be very careful here because we is also litigious but yeah there's been lots of alleged instances of of bad treatment of staff like all kinds of stuff that's not greater on we already um and so you know it's just like i the 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 seeming lack of a preparation for the issues management of this is kind of what's perplexed me the most cool yeah. Are we are we done? Are we done with this topic? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I thought I think it was been pretty good. Uh, all right. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Do not forget to like, follow, or subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app or on social media. We are at, at Ontario Loud on Twitter, or you can get at us at Ontario Loud Mail at gmail.com and we will get back to you. We love hearing your feedback. Ontario Loud is Grumatawa Kapoor, Alexi White, Sam Andre, Alvin Tejo, and me, Chris Martin. We are supported by we are supported by amazing volunteers, Anisha Anwar and Harmon Mundy, who I forgot, uh, and I, my apologies, Harmon, to credit with the research for our last episode with uh, MPP Laura May Lindo. Did an amazing job on that. Uh, thank you so much, Harmon. Uh, and thank you to everyone that supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud or ontarioloud.ca. Hit that Patreon link and sign up to support us today. Thank you for listening. See you next week.